A Million Likes is brought to you by Villa. Villa helps creators and freelancers get paid super fast for their brand collaborations. Gone are the days of waiting 30, 60, or even 90 days for payments. Using Villa, you press a button and get paid immediately, every time and for every client. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. Download from the App Store today and check it out for yourself. I grew up in the USSR, and the plan was that I would one day become an Olympic gymnast. Under the communist government, it was expected that in sports we all be the absolute best. You would not win gold medals for yourself, you won them for your country. The little girl that I was, pushed beyond the limits of her body, who cried and cried alongside so many of the other young girls. Just as skinny, just as blonde, my hair cut short to fit my training cap, so we wouldn't spread lice. I suppose I thought it was normal, that it was just a thing, to be forced to endure pain silently, without screaming. You know I am privileged in life, and have been gifted a passion for creating and the freedom to love. And yet, in my body now, as someone who does suffer with a chronic illness, I know my relationship to that body has been forever changed. My name is Lena, I'm 40 years old, a creator and a fashion lover, and this is my story. Chernobyl. This, if you aren't familiar, is known as one of the worst nuclear disasters in history. More than 49,000 people were evacuated. It is a very real, yet surreal part of my history. I was only five when it happened. April 26, 1986. Everything went down only about 100 kilometers north of where I lived. And yet, it wasn't until many years later that my parents would tell me the truth of it. Instead, I only remember the big parade in Kiev, the capital of Ukraine, to celebrate workers' rights held later that week. We were joined by so many lining the streets, adults and children out in numbers, all ages, laughing and enjoying the fresh air. I remember so many smiles, each of them as bright as the balloons and flowers we held. At the same time, Ukraine, Russia, Belarus, and even parts of Europe were being exposed to radiation, and no one knew how often or how much anyone received. I'll probably never know. Now, as an adult, I have been thinking about how much the radiation must have affected me, how much it has affected my immune system. Those questions and frustrations. Was that it? Was it that that started it all? I think there is a part of the battle that's about trying to accept that the damage has been done without getting lost in the what-ifs.
My mom had been working in the U.S. for a few years as a house assistant, cooking, cleaning, and babysitting for a Russian family. And the group of them insisted on having me down for the summer to stay. Me, a 12-year-old girl from Kiev, traveling on her own to America. I remember thinking it was incredible that the American embassy let me come at all. I knew even then the truth of how hard it was for most people to leave. As soon as I stepped out into the city itself, I felt the humidity hit my whole body like a shower. It was something I had never experienced, just this thick, heavy, hot air. It was so different from the dry air in Ukraine where I grew up. I immediately knew I loved it. My mom's boss was waiting for me outside customs with a friendly smile, and he took me across the city to my new home for the summer, where finally I saw her standing there. My mom, she looks just like I'd left her. I was so happy to see her. I was only 12 and had missed her so much. There were so many firsts that night and on into the next. The whole summer was excitement, skyscrapers, my very first hamburger. So very different from anything I'd ever had. So delicious in a restaurant with big red velvet chairs. Then there were the yellow taxis, the people, and then almost overnight, the trip to Poconos, where we stayed for the rest of the summer, working and enjoying the sun. The whole thing was way too short, of course. But soon, the leaves in Poconos turned. My mom insisted that I return to school, telling me in earnest that I would be back before I knew it. My mom was right, of course. I would be back in New York, though it wasn't easy. I wouldn't come to America for another three years. I can remember each visa application being denied as if I were right there again, as if it was all some cruel joke that they had let me leave Kiev in the first place. I was allowed to see New York once, but that was it. I kept applying for a visa, and yet, every time the day would come, the hope, big as a balloon in my chest, I would go to the embassy with those papers and find the application denied. I don't think I had ever wanted anything so much in my life. At each denial, I would just cry all the way home, watching my shoes, a pain in my chest where the hope had been just that morning. And then, all of a sudden, everything changed. By 1996, my mom finally got her official documents in the U.S., and I was finally accepted as her daughter. I left my father and my beloved grandparents behind, trying to stay brave and strong, my fears sharp with not knowing if or when I would see them next. I kept close to that simple hope that we just would. And as if that wasn't enough, in the days before cell phones, I would also find myself held up for hours in post-flight processing once I finally landed on American soil. My mom worrying on the other side of the gate. New York so close, I could taste it. In the end, it all worked out. And you should have seen the surprise relief on her face when I came through those doors at the JFK airport. I like to joke with her about that day how she was wearing his block heel palms in black by Steve Madden. A day later, she let me wear them. So I always say, she's to blame for my love affair with a good pair of high heels. 
was quickly surrounded by new friends from familiar cities, and we found ourselves filled to the brim with familiar culture, cuisine, and even faces. I remember making shish kebabs on the grill, buying pre-cooked Ukrainian meals served in dyes all across the city, and of course, a little homestyle vodka here and there. To this day, I consider myself lucky that I was so close to my roots, that there was so much to experience, and that it all reminded me of home. Of course, I was also becoming a teenager, and so much of the world was still opening up to me. With my friends by my side, we began filling our social calendars with more nefarious deeds, trying alcohol, and traveling to Ukrainian festivals in New York City on our own. There, we would live in tents, cook food by the fire, and laugh until our guts hurt. When I look back, it is hard to see that time as anything but good. I was having the experience of a lifetime, living on the edge. I felt the freedom of it all in my heart, in my mind, and in my body. We spent a ton of time hiking along wooded trails, so rashes, itches, scrapes, they all seemed normal. I know now that it was probably then when I was exposed to Lyme through a tick bite. The disease was so prevalent in upstate New York, and yet, just like ticks, I had no idea what it was, what the symptoms were, or that very soon I would start showing signs too. The CDC reports about 476,000 Americans with Lyme. It is an infection that can spread to your heart, your liver, and even your nervous system, as it has in my case. For me, it started with the joint pain. I had trouble going upstairs in my own home. had trouble even with driving stick shift in my car. I remember parking as closely as possible as to wherever I needed to be so I wouldn't have to walk. Slowly but surely, I became foggy. My brain clouded. Soon, that same subway ride became a place of exhaustion. I would pray for someone to stand up so I could sit. Already I was starting to suffer, but I had no idea then just what was ahead. Hi, this is Tracy Ellison, also known as The Diamonds Girl. Tune in next week for a new episode of A Million Likes, where I will tell you how and why I made a 360-degree career change and ended up being one of the most influential jewelry bloggers in the world. My husband is the smartest and kindest man I know. He grew up in upstate New York, studied electrical engineering at Harvey Mudd, then finance in University of Chicago, and is wonderfully handsome. Most of all, he's the kind of man you dream out loud with. The kind where you aren't afraid to share your friends, your hopes, and especially your worries. He was open with me about his own diagnosis from the beginning. He has chronic fatigue syndrome and was honest from the get-go about how he got sick and the ways he had been able to go on living a relatively normal life. He and I were actually good friends for quite some time before. Almost overnight, we found ourselves completely in love. Our first years were the kind you read about. We spent days just enjoying each other's company, forming an inseparable bond. Later, when we were deeply in love, 
he proposed in the Florida Keys, where we spent our days by the water and our nights cozied up together on the veranda. Never once did we think that life would change so drastically and so soon. I remember just two days after Bob proposed, an incredible and terrifying rainstorm hit. I can't help but wonder if that storm was a kind of premonition of what was to come. Our suites started to flood and my fear started to get at me. I was in a panic, calling the front desk for an update, only for them to tell me not to worry, that they were checking the radar, that they would keep me informed. In the end, we held on to each other through the noise, the rain, the cold. By midday the next, then the storm had settled away into a dull rumble, and soon our fears were forgotten again. Soon we were planning a small family wedding, where, never wanting to wear a white dress, I wore a simple lilac gown, and were wed in a hotel room in New York City, our siblings and parents there to watch. Afterward, we all settled down for a true surf and turf feast, where we became completely dizzy, maybe with a little more than happiness, just enjoying each other's company. I remember the room being so familiar and full. Everything was so close, authentic, wholesome. It was a wonderful break from everything else. My new husband so handsome in his suit, and him swearing up and down had never seen me more beautiful. We felt deeply already our promise that we'd be there for each other through thick and thin. Still, I don't think we knew how much that promise would be tested. As you may know, and even if you don't, I have been sick for 20 years with two illnesses, one connected closely to the other, Lyme disease and chronic fatigue syndrome. That means insufferable fatigue on average, unpredictable crashes and relapses. It's been half my life now. Half. An acceptance. That's something else entirely. It's this thing that comes and goes as frequently as my energy. I usually oscillate between wishful, dreaming of a history where I had known the warning signs and not chalked it up to something minor, and anger. Anger with so many things, and particularly with the doctors I had been seeing at the time. I know as women, we have all heard, read, or experienced a medical professional seeing past our symptoms, but that couldn't prepare me for what I was about to face. For me, rash and joint pain symptoms were merely an allergy to sweat and lotion products, and because I was a dancer. Second opinions declared my problem a simple yeast infection. I was delirious half the time, driving to and from appointments in excruciating fatigue. Dizzy, stopping on the road for quick naps just to get there. And yeah, I'm sure it was all just a yeast infection. Thankfully, I had the sense to keep looking. When I moved to Connecticut with my new husband, who was then already suffering from chronic fatigue syndrome as well, we put the dots together and started to recognize my symptoms as something more than just being an overworked grad student. I often wonder if it wasn't my husband who saved my life. I began to suffer relapses so much like his. It was out of love and worry that he referred me to a CFS specialist at all, who eventually became my entry point to a diagnosis. I never thought, though, not even once, that I would still be sick at 40, 
still writing and talking about my experiences with chronic illness. That's how much I couldn't, and sometimes still, can seem to accept what's happening to me. I know I'm lucky to have found a diagnosis. Not everyone gets that small relief. But I'm not so sure it makes all this any easier. At the very least, now I have something to work with. When I began thinking about this podcast, I wondered how I could possibly sum it all up in so short a time. Since talking about acceptance, health, and the roller coaster journey to diagnosis can take so many turns. For me, it always comes up in questions. How did I get so sick that I ended up in a wheelchair, unable to shower more than once a week? How did it get so bad that talking for more than a few minutes can take everything out of me? I can barely listen to music or watch a film, let alone read books, while the worst days are like an endless expanse of fog, like I'm walking for miles with no idea where I'll get where I'm going. And always, always the questions are there. How did this happen? How is this possible? I know that these questions aren't great to dwell over, but ignoring them is impossible too, particularly now that I'm opening up again in the hope of raising awareness about chronic illness. This is, of course, after quite a few years of silence on the subject. Truthfully, I was exhausted by both my illness and the people around me, sometimes complete strangers or close friends who didn't believe that I could possibly be ill. When you present healthy in public with a chronic or acute illness, the hurtful conversations, whether intentional or not, begin to weigh on you. Thankfully, it was along my journey to healing that a dear assistant of mine recommend I started an Instagram page to take my mind off things, my condition, my fears, the non-believers. At first, I actually laughed at the idea. What would I post? I felt my life was only suffering. Then on a good day, I created a private account with a few personal pictures. I posted a photo or two of me with flowers and nature. I scrolled through fashion accounts and followed so many. It was like being open up to a world of beauty that was super accessible, even when I was low. People posted images of just shoes or bags, and I knew I could do all of that without standing. So I started posting more, and I guess people, well, they liked it. And now I have millions of followers. Of course, with that kind of traction, it was also necessary that I become a lot stronger to negative criticisms pretty quickly. I remember feeling distraught, but less alone hearing stories from incredible people about how they were being gaslit by family, friends, and even medical professionals about conditions they possess. I've had some go as far as to say I use my wheelchair to get attention, or that I use my illness to gain followers. One experience I'll never forget was being seated next to a group of four doctors from Stanford who spoke loudly about patients with my exact diagnosis. Soon, they were laughing at the alternative medicines we desperately seek. Call people like me crazy attention seekers. I was livid and could do nothing. My mother warned me that getting upset would cause a relapse. Instead, I just cried, silently, while they kept laughing. Not knowing that they spoke so freely about my reality, not understanding the cruelty of what they were saying. But that was then. Now, 
I really do feel stronger. I have no problem calling people out about their misguided opinions in a healthy way that doesn't break me down. That's how I believe I've come to a place where I can talk about this journey now, without worrying about what others will say. I can, for example, more openly discuss the way my world really was crashing down around me at the time, how I lost all faith for a while in the possibility of a future, and also how so many have come out of the woodwork to support my health journey and my husband's ever since. Like I said, it's been a roller coaster, and self-care when you have a chronic illness is like having a full-time job. My own care was already a 24-7 job after a few years of being married. I remember suffering from severe panic attacks about whether I could handle it all. I felt everything was falling apart. I would become so tense it hurt. My lungs could barely catch air. Soon I would be dizzy and need to lie down just to keep from going under. These were scary times. And really, we had no outside help until my mom, bless her, moved in with us. By this point in our journey, though, we were working together to search for answers, and we're constantly seeking treatment options all over the U.S. for our conditions. That is, until his condition took a turn for the worse. Too quickly, he became bedridden, and had a near-death experience thanks to a brush with sepsis. The love of my life almost passed away, and there was almost nothing I could do. I was drained with my own illness, and was trying to care for him, too. I already had barely anyone to talk to, and then my husband stopped being able to communicate verbally. These were times when I found myself deeply in despair, thinking that this was the worst, the end, for him and for me. It was impossible, and sometimes still is, for me to think that we would ever find a safe, healthy balance. Truly, when you get that sick, there's no way to enjoy what life has to offer. And you can't really socialize with the people you love. Some of the best things are taken from you when you're sick. I missed out on finishing graduate school and on the true experience of living in the heart of New York City at the peak of my 20s. All that being true, since we started talking more openly about our conditions, my husband and I have learned we aren't the only ones out there in the same situation. That we're not the only ones who count the minutes waiting for the suffering to stop. You can really lose who you are when you do that. You lose your essence, your fire. That's why looking back, I'm in awe of my husband, and I suppose proud of myself. How do we manage to survive through our darkest days yet? Could we have even done it without my mom's help? There were endless moments where I thought I would give up. But in the end, I do think we're all fighters. And healing comes in small forms. I want to return again to where my husband Bob and I were severely ill and doing everything we could just to hang on. We were in and out of treatments and at the time Bob was constantly hooked up to an IV for antibiotics. Once, I almost had to bring him to the emergency room, only to face another shock. Let me really set the scene for you. We were at home, calm until Bob began to convulse with shakes, quickly growing hot with fever. We called 911. And when the paramedics arrived, they suspected his pick line had become infected, almost killing him. This was right before Thanksgiving. 
the cold air outside already crisp. But luckily, our doctor who lived nearby was able to step in to monitor him and administer antibiotics. I'll never forget. Can't forget him mumbling to my mom and I while he held our hands, his grip so weak, saying over and over that this is it. He survived, but I honestly felt like death, mentally and physically. I was at the very edge of my wits trying to see a future beyond everything that was happening. Then, in just a few months, there were more fevers. Next time, we took him to the emergency room, where he was again shaken and pale. It was all I could do to keep from losing my grip entirely, but I had to live for him. I had to take care of him. If he could do it, so could I. He stayed for a few days before they sent us home. It was up to us to discuss symptoms and ask for blankets and a gurney. He was shaking so severely he could barely stand. They listened this time and were able to stabilize him. But no one had any answers as to why he had lost so much muscle or why he was so weak after only a few days. Then, the worst of it still. On our next visits to the doctor, they stopped hiding their questions. The nurses and doctors turned on me, asked if I was hurting him, whether it was my fault he was letting himself in the hospital. Suddenly, I felt their eyes on me wherever I went. Someone was assigned to our room to watch us night and day to ensure I didn't do anything to hurt him. It's so messed up to me that while I cared for the man I love more than anything, while I was the one asking for more tests in the face of actual laughter from medical professionals, that a hospital could decide I was the reason he was there. At one point, they suggested he was just crazy, and we knew we'd had enough. I asked for a port and a gurney to help us take him to the car, but this time they would not listen, insisting we find a wheelchair. I was so weak. He was so weak. I couldn't believe it. When we finally made it, I remember we both just sat there and cried. Thankfully, soon an opportunity presented itself. And I don't know if we even had the strength to say no. We went. Just like that, we were in Northern California. Far away from everything and in search of any healing we could find. I'm happy to say that after a while out here, my husband did stabilize. So much so that this year we were able to move to Southern California. He's still extremely ill, and I am a 24-7 care provider. But through it all, we've never stopped loving each other. I know there are so many of us out there with chronic illness who are in similar situations, or who have faced similar experiences. Maybe you've had a doctor misdiagnose you, or laugh in your face. Maybe you're at the symptom stage, or just found your diagnosis. Wherever you are in your journey, just know, you are not alone in this, even though so much can tell us we are. Honestly, there have been a number of times when giving up would have been easier, especially when, after being sick for so many years, and after suffering a major blow to my neurological system two years prior, I hit my own health rock bottom in 2018. I could barely text, let alone get on the phone, even my social media work became too tedious to care for. And with my hubby suffering so badly himself, there was no quick answer to researching next steps. All I knew is that I needed help. I couldn't do this anymore on my own. 
Finally enough, I found my mind wandering to television shows I used to be able to watch. I had tried the year prior to get into something, really anything that would take my mind off things, and ended up watching a few episodes of Housewives of Beverly Hills, of all things. My mind hung onto something then, that Yolanda Foster had been battling with Lyme disease, and more importantly, that she had been open about the woman who was helping her manage her condition. When I next found the energy, I used every ounce of it to find this woman's name. Soon, I learned she was a health coach and emailed her praying that she would be able to talk to me. Daisy White, bless her, was kind enough to offer a texting consultation where I admitted finally in writing to someone that I needed more help. So I suppose in saying all this, in talking about chronic illness and the shared experiences of my husband and I, I want to emphasize just how important it is to ask for help and to find your reason for living. I know, without that first admission of needing support, I wouldn't have found the healing I have so far. And it is in gratitude that I wish you the energy, freedom, and confidence to reach out when you need help. I promise you'll find a lighter, freer journey to energy, health, and the livelihood you once knew even amidst any downturns. Thank you again for having me, Lena. A Million Likes was brought to you by Willa. Download Willa from the App Store today and get paid super fast for your brand collaborations. Gone are the days of waiting 30. 60 or 90 days for payments. Using Willa, you press a button and get paid immediately. Check it out yourself.